you create passion by making the value and the opportunities represented by data real to individuals at all levels of an organization. We actually went into one organization last year that they created cartoons, like in comic books, where they had little people like the data scientists and data technologists and end users who dealt with the customer. And they had animated pictures of all these people and they had various expressions, like they were surprised or they were delighted. And it was kind of cool because it made it fun and engaging and amusing and something that more people could relate to. And it took away from the fear factor or the things that might make people not want to embrace data initiatives. Hello, everybody, and thank you so much for tuning in. You're listening to Dedicated On Air, where we bring together data experts to share their journey and impart their knowledge. This is Kate Stoshny, the founder of Dedicated and the host of Dedicated On Air. Hello, everybody. We are live here today on LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. And we're going to talk to Randy Bean. He's the CEO and founder of New Vantage Partners. And he's also the author of a book that's coming out soon. It's called Fail Fast, Learn Faster, Lessons in Data-Driven Leadership in an Age of Disruption, Big Data, and artificial intelligence. Today, we're going to talk about the cultural challenges that organizations face in becoming data-driven. Before I bring uh, Randy up on the virtual stage, I do have a question for the audience. So as you're joining, first, let us know, as always, where you're tuning in from, because I'm actually joining you from a brand new location today from Florida. have not live streamed from, from anywhere, but I think New York at this point. So this is uh, new for me, but anyways... Let's get to the question. So as you're joining the session, let us know, what do you think presents a bigger challenge for organizations in becoming data-driven? Do you think that it is culture or technology, right? So type in culture or technology. And for culture, think about issues of people, processes, or organizational alignment, things of that matter. So I'll repeat the question one more time for those who are joining. What do you think presents a bigger challenge for organizations that are trying to become data-driven? Is it culture or technology? So at this point, I'm going to go ahead and bring Randy Bean up on our virtual stage. Hello, Randy. Hi, Kate. How are you today? Excellent. Welcome to the Dedicated Show. It's a pleasure. Awesome. Well, for those who are not familiar with you, Randy, why don't you let people know a little bit about yourself, and then we'll we'll check on what people are saying regarding our question. Okay, well, thank you, and uh, glad to be here, and hello to everyone out there. I began my career in banking uh, several decades ago. When I first started in banking, I was responsible for, not to bore you with the details, but deposit accounting history systems, and they had this large repository of customer data. And I asked, what do you do with this data? And they say, well, the regulators make us hold on to it for seven years and then we destroy it. And immediately it struck me, what a lost opportunity. And for the ensuing decades, I've really focused on how organizations could leverage their data assets to become data-driven and to uh, gain competitive advantage. After my career in banking, I spent some time in the early days of database marketing, which later became CRM, working with companies to help them understand the totality of their customer relationships. In the internet era, I did two uh, venture-backed startups as a, as a founder. One of them was a, a Kleiner Perkins uh, company, so I spent three years uh, in the Silicon Valley uh, during the uh, peak of, and the bust of the internet era. 
And in 2001, I founded a uh, boutique management consultancy uh, serving as trusted advisors called New Vantage Partners. So we've been in business now for 20 years, and we focus exclusively on data and analytics and helping Fortune 1000 organizations leverage data, build a data-driven organization, develop a data culture, and innovate with data in their business. And as Kate mentioned, uh, during this COVID period, I finally agreed to write a book, and she did very well in catching the title because it's uh, very long, but it's uh, important each of the elements. So it's called uh, Fail Fast, Learn Faster, Lessons in Data-Driven Leadership in an Age of Disruption, Big Data, and AI. I had to I had to cheat a little bit, Randy, for that title because that that is a mouthful, but I, I agree. You have to capture that whole spectrum of, of topics because that's what you cover in your book. So thank you so much for joining me on this show. So I guess it sounded like it started a few decades ago, as you mentioned, when you asked the question of what happens to this data, right? That's where your data journey sort of began. That's correct. Um, and they mentioned that they deleted seven years after holding it, and you felt that there was an opportunity. Can you can you just talk a little bit more about that? Do you think that that data should be saved longer, or what was your thinking? Well, I thought here you have this tremendous asset. So you have all of this information on your customers, their transactions, their history with your organization. And the mindset was, uh, well, somebody is making us keep this. So we'll put it in a safe in a vault for seven years. And as soon as we can, we'll then have it destroyed. And it would seem to me at the time that there was a great opportunity not to put it into vault, into a vault, but actually take it out of a vault and start mining this information, this data to find out, to gain insights into who are your best customers, what products and services they bought, what was their purchasing history. So immediately it struck me that there was a missed opportunity. And that's really what I've been focused on in the ensuing decades. Great. Thank you so much for sharing that. All right. I'm going over to the comments. We have plenty of responses. I'll go through a couple. So we've got culture, culture. Someone said both. Rolf says hands down culture, more much like market orientation. Let's see. Someone added and mindset. That's, that's interesting. So culture, lots of culture. I haven't seen the word technology in the comments so far, which is Interesting because uh, before the session, you shared a statistic with me. Maybe share a bit about your research and what you've uncovered when you asked this question. Yeah. So when we started this business back in 2001, we had an assumption and that was, uh, you know, we all had um, technology backgrounds as well as business backgrounds. And we figured we'd be working with Fortune 1000 companies. And 95% of our time would be spent on technology and evaluation and selection, what technology best suits a particular need. And in reality, we learned pretty quickly, and it's been the case for the better part of the past 20 years, that it's not really technology that's the barrier to success. It's really culture. And we've been conducting this survey of uh, chief data officers and other C executives from Fortune 1000 companies since 2012. And one of the questions that we ask every year is, what is the principal challenge to becoming data-driven? And overwhelmingly, the answer is culture. We, we give a couple choices, but basically it comes down to cultural issues or technology. And for example, in 2018, 80% of the respondents said it was cultural issues and 20% said it was technology. In 2021, it was 92.2% that cited culture and less than 8% that cited technology. So not only is culture the primary impediment for organizations, 
but it's growing. You know, I sometimes take the example of going into companies and meeting with the data folks, and they describe to me the robust capabilities that they've created, and then meeting with the technology leaders, and they also share their view of the robust capabilities. And then you meet the line of business leaders, say, a CEO of the commercial bank or consumer lending or insurance, and they'll say, you know, we don't have confidence in the quality of our data. We don't trust the data. We're not getting the information we need in the t- with the timeliness that we need it. So in spite of the investments that the organizations have made, the business leaders aren't deriving the type of value that they expected. And that creates all kinds of issues in terms of lack of credibility, lack of trust, lack of confidence. So that's one of the reasons why cultural issues are are, are such an impediment to so many organizations. Yeah, absolutely. And just wanted to get a bit more uh, information on that survey that you said you've been running the survey since 2012. Is this a global survey? And what on average is the number of survey respondents that you get? Yeah, so this is a high-level senior executive survey. It it came out of a series of executive thought leadership breakfasts that have been hosting for the better part of a decade, and those are by invitation only, and it's historically been CIOs, CTOs, chief digital officers, chief marketing officers, and in more recent years, chief data officers. And these are typically from the largest financial services firms as well as life sciences firms, so companies like American Express and Bank of America and Citigroup and Wells Fargo and J.P. Morgan and MetLife organizations, uh, CVS, organizations of that kind. And out of that, one of the actually was a CIO from J.P. Morgan said, this was back in 2012, we're hearing this term big data, but we really don't know what that means. Is it something that's just a passing fad or is it something that we should get serious about? And we'd like to hear what other executives have to say. So each year we survey about uh, close to 100 executives from these top firms. So it's all are about 95% C-level respondents. And then we capture those results. There's roughly 25 questions. Uh, We publish it and it's been covered extensively each year in the Wall Street Journal, Harvard Business Review, Forbes, MIT Sloan Review, and other publications. Okay, great. Thanks for sharing that. And and I know it's not easy to get those C-suite level people to respond to surveys. So I'm glad that you're getting good responses and you're you're getting to gather that information. My uh, other question that I had is, you know, we're we're talking about the fact of, you know, data-driven and what challenges organizations are facing in becoming data-driven. But I wanted to maybe get a definition of what does data-driven really mean? When does a company or organization actually reach a state where they can say, oh, hey, look, we've made it. We're data driven now. Or is it a journey that continues on? So I wanted to get your your thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, and I could speak for hours, if not days or or, or weeks on this topic, because this is really my focus. One of the things that prompted me to write the book, so this is a long answer to a short question, is that I, I was reflecting over the past decade. I went back and I looked at some of the first articles from 2010 to 2012 that talked about big data and how that was going to change everything. And what was interesting to me was there was these very ambitious statements that were made in terms of everybody would be data-driven and they'd have the data that they need at their fingertips all of the time. But there was a caveat at the end, and the caveat was that this was all predicated upon organizations being able to organize and align and being ready to take this on. So that's a huge caveat. And I wrote an article for Forbes 
in the fall called the failure of big data. And failure was in quotes because what I was really trying to point out was that the goals and ambitions were right on target, but the time frame was really not on target. It takes large organizations, particularly mainstream companies, a long time to undertake this transformation. A lot of it has to do with organizational readiness. And many organizations pay lip service. In other words, they like to talk about how data-driven they are, or for that matter, they like to talk about their AI initiatives. But when you speak to them and you interview them uh, for actual case studies, they're hard-pressed often to produce examples. So to your point, being data-driven is not something that an organization arrives at overnight. It's a long-term journey. We find that the organizations that are most successful are actually the ones that continue to sustain these efforts. In other words, when I go into an organization and they say, we have everything under control, we're all set, we're very confident in what we're doing, that makes me worry. When I go into organizations that say we're, we're not confident, we're always wondering about what we could do better, we're wondering about what the competition is doing, and that is what I hear from the organizations that, uh, from my perspective, are the most data-driven. When I talk to organizations like Capital One in banking or American Express in the credit card industry, they're always feeling that they could be doing better, that they could be doing more. They're never satisfied with where they are. So, so when I hear organizations say we have everything under control, usually that means to me that they probably don't. You should be worried, right? If they think everything is fine, then you should be worried. That's interesting. So just going back to the survey quickly, you mentioned that at first, I guess, culture was rated as 80% or 82% and now is at 90% a year or two later, actually, maybe three years later. And my question was, do you think it's because technology is getting better and is no longer posing as many challenges? Or do you think people are just kind of getting worse in terms of uh, accepting this, this data culture? Well, I made a few notes, so let me just hit on some points, and then I'll try to um, make sense of those points. So, you know, we live in an age or a period of time where data is proliferating. It's abundant. So organizations and people, individuals and society have to learn how to deal with that one way or another and figure out how they can benefit. In my book, I use a, a number of quotes, and one of those quotes was, it was actually from Andrew Cuomo, who a year ago was proclaimed as, um, or, or he was very popular, and now he's much less popular. But what he said was, we need to follow data, science, and facts. So separating that from the individual, the idea that organizations or even decision-making in society should look at the data and science and facts to help guide their decision-making is just something that is makes good business sense and good common sense. It's kind of the opposite of superstition. The idea is not that you just look at the data and take it as gospel, but you need to consider it, look at it, factor in human judgment, and all of those things are what successful organizations do. Yeah, and uh, we're getting some questions already. So you mentioned those organizations, I guess, the, the big banks and Capital One and all that, and uh, Cooper had a question here asking how dependent are these organizations on having enough data and high quality data? Well, you know, data, when you think of data as a business asset, every organization has a certain set of data that, that only they have. So there's internal data and there's external data, but each organization knows their customers best. 
And if they can look at that data and analyze that data to identify the behavioral patterns or the buying patterns of their customers, that they have a leg up on their competitors. So from my experience, those organizations that leverage the internal data that's unique to them have a whole set of insights that um, their competitors don't have. You know, their competitors can look at the data on their customers, but mining what you have is, to me, probably the key competitive advantage which every firm can leverage. Yes, I think that every is the key word. I do think it's every firm, every industry, I do believe, needs to be data-driven. There's also a question here from Ravid. It's, it's slightly switching direction into your into your book. Hope you don't mind. But Ravid's asking, what was the inspiration for you to write your book? So maybe let's talk a little bit about that. You said you finally got convinced to write a book. So I'm assuming it was not on your list for, you know, it was not on your life list for 10 years and you're like, finally, I'm going to do it or, or was it? Yeah, so um, so I should note that for the past decade, I've been writing extensively. Uh, I started writing a monthly column in the Wall Street Journal on big data back in 2014, 2015. And as these things go, at the end of 2015, Wall Street Journal said, well, okay, so everybody understands big data and now that's like no, no longer happening, at which time I took the uh, column to Forbes and have been writing there ever since. In addition, write on a regular basis for Harvard Business Review and the Wall Street Journal. So I've been doing a lot of writing and had been approached by various times at various times over the years about the idea of writing a book. But, you know, my mindset was like a, a book takes time. It takes away from consulting. Nobody, nobody ever makes money on a book. Why would you want to do it? And also, I was actually an English literature major, which is one of the reasons why I enjoyed writing. And I thought that if I wrote a book, I want to write like Moby Dick or The Great Gatsby. I, I didn't want to write kind of a how-to business book. But I realized I had the time, uh, you know, I, I, I couldn't travel and, and it was really an opportunity. And when I started to think about it, I realized that there was no history of the big data or the data period, looking back over a period of decades. You know, I remember when data people were isolated in a little corner, they were thought to be, you know, very nerdy and geeky, you know, the term propeller heads. Occasionally, one of them would be allowed into the boardroom to speak for five minutes and, and, and then please leave. So I really want to provide some perspective, look at the history of data, how it's evolved in organizations. And also really the organizing metaphor, if you will, of the book was this idea of uh, fail fast, learn faster, which is actually a quote from the Irish playwright and novelist Samuel Beckett. And, and it's, a, it's a metaphor for learning from experience or our test and learn trial and error. And the point is, if you don't take a risk, if you don't do something, if you wait for things to be perfect, you're never going to make any progress. You're never going to advance. So you need to get out there, try things, see what works. The most successful firms, you know, I've written a number of articles about American Express, Express's experience, and they're very open about talking about their failures. We tried this and it failed, we tried that and it failed, but they didn't give up, they kept on trying at it. And I see so many organizations abandon uh, data initiatives because they don't work perfectly the first time. And along those same lines, back to your point, Kate, about data being a journey. It's not this type of king of the hill thing where you get up to this peak and you now say, I'm, I'm data driven. 
because, um, you know, there's always going to be somebody that's aiming to be the, the next king of the hill. So to, it's an ongoing process. You have to continually reinvent yourself, find new ways to think, to do things and always seek to be better each and every day. Yeah. And I guess you, you already answered Ravit's question, but he, he seems to really like your title, the Fail Fast, Learn, learn Faster. Uh, I love that story. So thanks for sharing. Uh, I didn't know that was um, a quote. So now I know. And I wanted to ask, let's let's stick with the book for, for a minute. Who is the book written for, right? Who would be the ideal target audience to actually read the book? Yeah, well, you know, it, it's actually pretty ambitious. <laughs> uh, Everybody? Yeah, so, so I don't know if it will fulfill those ambitions, but I was trying to write for multiple audiences. I was actually trying to write a crossover book because I know many people from different walks of life. So on the one hand, I was trying to write for Fortune 1000 CEOs and board members who are saying, you know, I don't really want to understand the details. What does this matter for me? How does this make our company better? Explain it in simple terms. You know, how does this make us more profitable or grow our customer base or compete more successfully? So in all of my articles, I always tell the story. I try to write at a third grade level, which I describe that as the CEO level. And I don't say that in a negative fashion. I just mean people need things simplified. They need to know what the impact is to them. You know, I tell the story sometimes a former colleague of mine, we went and met with a CEO of a major insurance company. And my colleague had a PhD from a top university. I won't say where because it might give away who, who he was. But he described this data approach for about an hour. And it was it was brilliant. You know, I understood about 10%. But, you know, I, I could just, the, ration, the rationality provided behind it was brilliant. And in the last two minutes of the meeting, the CEO, who had never said anything, and I'd never said anything, he taps me on the arm and he said, so um, this sounds amazing. What does this mean? And I said, it means you can do it faster and you can do it cheaper. He goes, now I get it. You know, so this is of great value. So one of the audiences with these executives that read it really needed it distilled. But at the same time, I realized that I had to speak to practitioners, analysts, data scientists, data management folks. And so I put in a lot of examples, and many of those are based upon case studies that I've written over the years and companies that I've interviewed. So I've tried to provide a lot of meat and substance. Uh, and then I also wrote for general readers because um, I meet people all the time that ask me what I do. And I work at explaining it in ways that they understand. Sometimes I use the, the metaphor Moneyball for business because people have read the book or seen the movie, so they understand that. And so what I tried to do was also write for general readers to make it relevant for many different people. And so people would understand what's all the fuss been about data over the past uh, decade and longer. And I would say that during the COVID epidemic, it really raised the awareness of data because it became important in terms of people were trying to understand, like, who's, who's going to get it and what are the probabilities and what is the data that we need to pull together to accelerate vaccines. So it really raised the profile of data uh, with the general public. Great. So to summarize, it's executives. Then there's enough substance for data scientists, data analysts, and also simple enough that the general public can can consume as well, right? Yeah, it's a little bit like a, a mirror because I went out to seek, you know, what they call advanced praise or blurbs. And so sent uh, sections of the book to 20 different people, including like uh, 
Well, it's, it depends what generation you're in. So for people that are old, you know, I sent it to like Jeffrey Moore, who wrote Crossing the Chasm. People said, oh, Jeffrey Moore. And, you know, he, he provided his input. And for other people that are old, I sent it to Martha Rogers and Dawn Peppers, who wrote One-to-One Marketing. And then for people that are young, I sent it to people that have sent it to uh, Cindy Housen, who does the Chief Data Officer podcast. So... In answer to your question, different people ha- have a different lens on the book, and that's one of the things that it has interested me. So uh, some people focus really on the detailed case studies, and others focus more on the history and the evolution, and sometimes they're surprised that people have been working at this for 20, 30, or 40 years even. Hmm. Okay, well, that's that's good. And um, if Cindy liked the book, then I definitely have to pick up a copy. I love Cindy. So this is great. Raymond says, oh, he has to, he has to read your book. So there, there have been a couple of questions in terms of where can people get the book? Now, I know it's currently available for pre-order, right? Is that just on Amazon or where can people actually go to get the book? You can go on Amazon under the book title, and it actually has all of the pre-release reviews. So all of the people that I mentioned, so you can read uh, Cindy Housen's review there, which uh, she, I think she said like all CEOs, board members, CDOs, and anybody interested in data and analytics should buy this book. Um, So on Amazon, it's there for pre-order with the reviews. And also, there's discounted bulk sales available through uh, Porchlight Books. There's actually a website that's set up, failfastlearnfaster.org, which uh, ha- has a lot of information and reviews on the book, if you're interested. And, yep, I've just put it in the in the chat as well. So I put it across the multiple streams on Facebook, YouTube, so failfastlearnfaster.org. Um, so Ravit thought the book was already out. Ravit, it's close. Randy can't wait. We all can't wait. Uh, when is it releasing, Randy? It's August 31st. I will tell my book story because it's 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 good to know for at least people that have never written a book before. So publisher Wiley and Company, they contacted me in, in October, asked me if I wanted to write a book. And I said, absolutely not. I, I thought about it. I called them back in November and I said, oh, OK, I'll, I'll do the book. Um, and we agreed on what the topic of the book was would be. And so they said, do you think you can get us a half manuscript in February and a complete manuscript in May? And I said, I'm, I'm sure I can. Um, and I started thinking about the book for a few weeks, and then I really conceived of it and how I was going to write it and, and break it down into the 10 chapters which it contains. And I started writing around Thanksgiving. And on January 4th, I sent them the entire manuscript, and they accepted it as is. So. <laughs> They moved up the release date uh, five months and earlier than the original uh, projected release date. But it is August 31st and then went through the process of uh, cover design and collecting the blurbs and now into the pre-marketing phase. Great. Well, good news. Um, Matthew has already purchased the book. Well, he, he's ordered the book. Looks forward to, to learning more. Thank you, Matthew. Um, I'm excited for you. I know, Randy, that it must be a great feeling when your manuscript is just accepted as is. I'm assuming it's all those years of writing for Wall Street Journal and all the other great publications that you've written for where you were able to just throw together a book and have it accepted as is. That's that's really awesome. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what they said. They said, you know, there was a, a strong voice. And I try to take a, a provocative position throughout the book. You know, one of the things I try to point out is that um, 
Data is in many ways a threat to many because it challenges our prevailing assumptions. It challenges prevailing ways of doing business. So, um, you know, it, it, it can cause fear. And as much as there's proponents and whole uh, professional industry based around data, you know, not everybody is comforted by data. And those are the challenges that have to be overcome from the cultural perspective. Sometimes it's as much the messenger as opposed to the message. So sometimes, you know, a pill is easier to swallow when it's when it's sugar-coated or whatever the expression is. So, um, you know, organizations are, are more likely to adopt data initiatives when it's presented in a way that they can see the benefit, what's in it for them, uh, that it's not presented in a way that threatens, you know, how they're organized, how they're going to do business, changes long-held assumptions. Um, you know, there's no silver bullet. Um, each organization has its own culture. So on the one hand, I'm saying organizations need to get started. They need to do things. They need to learn from experience. They need to learn through trial and error. At the same time, you can't come in like, hey, there's a new sheriff in town. We're going to be data driven. You know, everybody get in line. You, you really have to work at um, getting people to buy in and particularly having strong business sponsors. If you have strong business sponsorship, that's the most important thing, because then you can start to establish credibility, uh, show quick wins, build momentum and trust. And then an organization is on a, on a better footing. You know, I, I will say that having, um, you know, I, I think I mentioned that the first, uh, one of the first chief data officers with a major financial services, Citigroup, came out of our firm in, in 2009. So have been very involved in helping organizations shape the chief data officer role. And we've worked with a number of organizations filling that role on an interim or acting basis for a period of time. But there's been a tremendous turnover in that role. I can point to a number of the top banks and financial services firms that are on their third, fourth, fifth, or even sixth or seventh iteration of people in that role. And often it's like a, a, it's like whiplash. In other words, some organizations will bring in somebody to be a change agent but the, the benefit is that they can bring uh, outside perspectives, but sometimes they're not sensitive to the culture. So they break glass and step on the wrong toes and then they lose organizational support. And then often the organization will turn to an insider, but the insider is afraid of ruffling anybody's feathers or is overly cautious. So, you know, I'm finding organizations are kind of starting at the extremes and moving to the center and finding people that can bring the balance of um, change perspective, but without totally disrupting the culture. Yeah, you, you bring up a really good point of that external versus internal um, chief data officer, because they do bring very different perspectives. If you If you had to pick one, do you think that external push is more effective at maybe pushing towards a data-driven culture? Or do you think it's best to go with that internal perspective or, where you know the culture and kind of shift things in, in smaller steps? You know, it's it's a really difficult call on that. Um, but I would give, um, I, I would err on the side of the external person, but I would urge the external person to not come in too, too strong to really take the time to understand the culture. You know, the biggest thing that, I'm attuned to in this business is what I call 
the readiness of an organization to undertake things. And sometimes, you know, this is expression, uh, watch what they do, not what they say. Uh, mm-hmm. As often organizations will say, oh, you know, we're um, data driven, you know, we're all about data and, and this and that, but um, they, they don't necessarily back it up with the actions to, to support that. Uh, and, and sometimes people will send me information, they'll see something uh, in the media and they'll send it to me and they say, oh, you should go in and help this organization because they have a problem here that could be solved with data. And I have to laugh. And I said, well, that applies to every organization. It's not the fact that they have a problem. It's an organization that's ready to acknowledge that they have a problem and say, you know, how can we work with parties and work internally with our own staff to uh, try to make progress and do it one step at a time and uh, basically establish a a process that takes us to a data-driven outcome over time. Yeah, I guess slowly over time getting uh, buy-in with maybe some small quick wins of of moving towards being data-driven could probably take you there faster than Someone coming in and saying, okay, everyone, pencils down. We're doing things in a different way now. Yeah, um, that doesn't go over well. No, no. There's a really good question here. Uh, so, Randy, after 20 years of consultancy, are you still shocked how immature some of these large organizations are in the data space? <laughs> I, I would say that nothing shocks me anymore. Uh, I mean, I, I expect it. Um, you know, sometimes organizations will speak to me and they'll say, you know, uh, we're going to tell you what's happening in our organization. You won't believe how bad we are. And when they describe it, when it's all said and done, I said, let me give you some comforting advice. What you've just described is actually very normal. It's what most organizations are experiencing. And the fact that you're willing to talk about this means that you recognize it and you're willing to take the steps to move forward as opposed to the organizations that uh, deny it and say that everything's all set. You know, I, I will say that there's a question in the survey, and I'm going to cite it, that we ask every year uh, because it's very illustrative. We ask about whether organizations, so we ask this question, are you driving innovation with data? Are you competing on data and analytics? Are you managing data as a business asset? Uh, have you forged a data culture? So let me read you some of the numbers. Uh, driving innovation with data, 48%. That's not bad. Managing data as a business asset, 39%. Not so good. Forged a data culture, 24%. Not very good at all. Created a data-driven organization, 24%. Not really good at all. But the most interesting thing is these numbers have actually gone down over the past five years. <laughs> so you would have thought that these numbers would have gone up as you know there's more and more chief data officers and there's more and more data professionals, and more and more money invested in data. But in fact, these numbers have gone down. And you know there's probably at least a couple of reasons that attrib- that that can be attributed to. One is you know the ongoing proliferation of data. So. You know, even as organizations progress, there's more different types of data to deal with and more processes to be set up. The other way of looking at it is maybe organizations are just becoming more realistic. And before they would have said, oh, we're data driven and we have a data culture. But they've learned that they really are not as far along as they might have hoped they were. And maybe that's a good sign that organizations are being more self-critical in that regard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And um, going back to that question about being shocked, I just wanted to share when I started my consulting journey, probably about 10 years ago, 
I remember my first client was one of these really, really big banks, and we were there for regulatory compliance purposes. And uh, the topic was data, and regulators basically wanted you know, more insights, more granularity, and a look at at data that the banks have um, access to post the financial crisis and all that stuff was going on, CCAR and everything. And I remember I was truly shocked because they're like, well, yeah, this system should be talking to this system, but the numbers don't add up. And we have 55 other systems. And I'm like, wait, I'm trusting you guys with my money. <laughs> like this is, um, you don't really know what system is talking to what. I was, I was pretty shocked, um, but I did want to ask. So I know you have experience in financial services. Are there specific industries or sectors that you've come across where you think that they're far more, you know, far, far more advanced in terms of being data driven from, from a culture and or technology perspective? Yeah. And I would say before I answer that question is that, uh, you know, I, I do go into a lot of companies and, you know, we'll sit with um, the senior management team and say, uh, how many customers do you have and get uh, 10 different answers? And some of them are, are wildly different. So, you know, there's the old saying about you can use the data to represent just about any conclusion that you want to. So that that's but that's a separate topic. So financial services have been at this for decades. So and one of the reasons is because financial services customers are high value. It's not like selling uh, cornflakes or Wheaties, you know, where people pay whatever you pay for cereal these days, $4 a box, you know, customer relationships are worth hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars or tens of thousands of dollars to an organization. So they need to do everything they can to uh, keep and grow those customer relationships. It's very expensive to go and get new customer relationships. Financial services firms have also been highly regulated as well, which brings up a separate question of offensive activities versus defensive offensive, meaning revenue generation and growth versus defense, meaning keep the uh, regulators and, and stay in compliance. But uh, financial services has been working at this a long time. Some organizations, um, I've mentioned Capital One a few times, American Express, uh, you know, actually did a lot of work with Wells Fargo, which I think is a, a funny story that I'll mention briefly. And that was, you know, being based so close to uh, Silicon Valley in San Francisco coming out of the Internet era. Uh, Wells Fargo was one of the most advanced in terms of leveraging the Internet and the digital channels to serve their customers. And one of the things that they became very skilled at using data for was uh cross-selling. Fortunately, what happened was it became so embedded in the culture that there was abuses and excesses, and ultimately Wells Fargo got in trouble for actually being really good at using their data. It was abused because people wound up being sold products that they didn't really need. So, you know, one of the things I actually talk about in the book is I have a chapter on the evils of data. Uh, For any of you who are familiar with Kathy O'Neill's book, uh, weapons of math destruction. It talks all about bad algorithms and all the ways that data can be used in a bad fashion. Um, you know, I did talk about that book once to a, a CEO of a major financial services firm, and they immediately reacted and they said, "Well, she's a liar and a fraud and, and this type of thing." So there's very strong opinions, um, but I do donate, I do dedicate a chapter to uh, a lot of the risks and how data can be misused. And I put examples in there, quoting other people about abuses by Facebook and others. So it's, um, 
you know, try to present a balanced view. Yeah, absolutely. I love Kathy. I actually interviewed her for my Mothers of Data Science book and recently saw her. There's a Netflix show, and I guess it was uh, maybe on Sundance as well, that Coded Bias um, that came out all about algorithmic bias. So uh, it was definitely interesting Interesting to, to take a look at. So you've got a chapter on evils of data. Um, back to your book for a second. Do you have a favorite chapter that you wrote? Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually that chapter. <laughs> <laughs> I, I spend all this time talking about, oh, you should become data-driven and you should leverage data as a business asset and, uh, you know, you should hire a chief data officer and this type of thing. And then I say, you know, here's all of the things that you need to think about in terms of algorithmic bias and how organizations can potentially misuse data. So I think that's a good balancing uh, thing. And and I, I I actually like that chapter at best because I think that it, gives the book some, uh, I don't know what you call it, heft in terms of trying to uh, put, put things in perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's always good. You can't you can lean fully on to, hey, just everyone data-driven. Let's forget about all the other stuff. <laughs> so I love that. Question here from Richard. So data culture equals organizational passion for data-driven decisions. How is this passion nurtured? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, how is this passion nurtured? There's a lot of movements these days to a data literacy, so data democratization in terms of educating across large portions of an organization in terms of making them understand the value of data. You know, we've done a lot of work over the years with data lineage where we were able to show different business owners and actually the CEO ultimately about here's all the people that touch data, here's all the people that use data, here's where new data is created. So I think you create passion by making the value and the opportunities represented by data real to individuals at all levels of an organization. We actually went into one organization last year that they created cartoons, like in comic books, where they had little people like the data scientists and data technologists and end users who dealt with the customer. And they had animated pictures of all these people and they had various expressions, like they were surprised or they were delighted. And it was kind of cool because it made it fun and engaging and amusing and something that more people could relate to. And it took away from the fear factor or the things that might make people not want to embrace data initiatives. Yeah, I think it's it's really important to show them the, the positives, the value that can come out of being data-driven. One thing I noticed that was successful is in, in moving towards a data-driven organization is showing people the decisions that they make on a daily basis kind of without the data and show how the data can help in that decision-making process. Um, it, it, it does take time, I think, for, for some people to finally be bought over, but culture is not as straightforward, right? You can't flip a switch. It's not, it's not technology, it's people. And people are complicated. Just two things. You know, you asked me before about industries. I also wanted to mention life sciences because life sciences is newer and more nascent in their use of data, but they have so much data and it really is the future. And I think that's really been highlighted by, uh, you know, the COVID epidemic and the vaccine that uh, pharmaceutical companies and life sciences companies can look at the data and look at it across different populations, different products, different drugs, different scientific groups, and realize a greater benefit. Uh, the sum is greater than the part. So I think that there's a 
great future in data in the, in the life sciences. Sorry. Yeah, no, you mentioned um, you mentioned when you were talking about financial services, how uh, the monetary uh, incentive to get things right with data is so, so huge. And I remember thinking about healthcare and how in that situation, it's literally life or death. So there, there's plenty of motivation on that side of, of the fence as well. Well, well, there's there's a short story. So uh, my wife's worked her entire career in healthcare. I've been more in financial services. So, so I'd come home, you know, a decade or so ago, and I'd talk about here's the weekly sales numbers, and she said, "Well, here's the weekly morbidity and mortality numbers." Okay. So, uh, you know, for, for her, the data was more truly more more life and death. Yes, exactly. But it's all data, right? <laughs> no matter how you spin it. Exactly. So some comments on your, I think, the data evil chapter. Truly unfortunate that some of these big players have behaved so poorly in the past. They have made it hard to evangelize the importance of analytics at the SMBs. Uh, and a follow-up comment that it's tough overcoming that narrative that data is something that is, you know, always misused. So I wanted to see if you, if you had thoughts on, on that comment. Yeah, you know, think of technology or think of media. Technology can be used for good or it can be used for bad and evil, as you know everyone knows. And media, you know, media can be used to communicate things that are to the benefit of society. That can be used to present very selective, cherry-picked points of view. You know, regardless of you know what your particular views are. So. In that same fashion, data can be used for good, the benefit, or it can be abused. And it really has to do with whose hands it's in. And, you know, one of the people that I've done a lot of work with is uh, Cameron Carey, who's now with the Brookings Institution. He's done a lot of work with MIT Media Labs. His brother is uh, John Carey. And his whole focus is on the ethical use of data, and he's worked hard to put in place a number of standards and public policies around ethical data use. So there are, you know, many people focusing on these issues. You know, I've been involved with a number of data for good initiatives and and for a few years even started up a foundation, Big Data for Social Justice. So there's many very positive uses that data can be put to. MasterCard has their whatever it's called, the Data for Good uh, Exchange. Uh, there's a group called Data Kind, which brings together data scientists to work on uh, problems for uh, public benefit. So there's a number of organizations that are focused exclusively on Data for Good initiatives. And, and by the way, at, uh, at our executive breakfast a few years ago, I said, you know, for the next breakfast, we're going to talk about data ethics. And I figured that that would be the breakfast that was least attended. Instead, it was the one that was most attended and people were most passionate and people were most engaged. So it's fascinating. People really want to do the right thing with data and corporations. You know, sometimes corporations get a a bad name, but sometimes they also stand up for some of the things that are right in society. Yes, I I definitely heard of some of the organizations that you mentioned, like DataKind, and it does give you some some hope for the future. Um, I'm pretty optimistic. As it is, but when I see people actually getting together, like uh, I know hackmakers were working with United Nations recently to get together and take care of some of their sustainable development goals. So really, really motivating to see some of that positive stuff coming out in the data community. Randy, we are about to wrap up. So I wanted to ask you a final question, and it's essentially for people who are listening. 
how can they become more data-driven in their organization, right? What are maybe a few pieces of advice that you want to give away in terms of how to overcome some of those cultural challenges or, or any key takeaways on that topic? So I'm just going to list a bunch of things real quickly. Um, and there's an article that I wrote in MIT Sloan Management Review on September 30th called, let's see, where is that article? Well, I had it here somewhere, but it's it's basically about overcoming the cultural challenges that organizations face. But you know, I just say so much depends upon an organization's receptivity to change, their readiness. Not all companies are ready personal benefit, what's in it for them, you know, unless people see a specific benefit for them. I'd reiterate the importance of uh, quick wins, credibility and momentum, the importance of making the pill easy to swallow, enlisting business sponsorship, focusing on high value use cases that ties to specific business outcomes, persisting in these efforts. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a journey. Um, There's a quote that I have right at the very beginning of the book called, perfect is the enemy of good. It's from the French uh, writer Voltaire. But it's, it's a good lesson because I see so many organizations that are trying to get things perfect in terms of the right environment, the right technology. It doesn't need to be perfect. Start and generate the best results you can. And really get that human and people buy in, and then I think things get better from there. Great. Well, Randy, I want to thank you so much. And everyone listening, definitely go pre-order, pre-order the book. I'm pre-ordering the book. If anyone wants bulk orders that just opened up yesterday or the day before, so you can get bulk orders. If you're you know listening from an organizational perspective, get this for your team. Definitely encourage you to follow uh, Randy Bean on LinkedIn, on Twitter, Randy, where else do you post content? Are those two the main mediums yeah, for you? I think, uh, let's see. You can always reach me personally at rbeannewvantage.com, on Twitter at, at RandyBeanNVP, on LinkedIn, and then uh, at newvantage.com. Uh, that has all of the articles. You know, there's, I had to count the other day, there's roughly 150 articles that have published over the past decade um, and many case studies. Wow, that's that's just a couple of books in there already that that you've written. So I'm sure this book uh, was was just a piece of cake for you. Just put all your thoughts together. So, all right. Well, Randy, thank you again for your time, and everyone who tuned in, thank you so much for participating. We will uh, see you all online. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to the Dedicated On Air podcast. We really hope you'll come back for more episodes, and until then. Stay dedicated.